Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Liz Curran lost her sister to an aggressive breast cancer. This changed her life in so many ways and led her down a path to become a holistic cancer health coach. I am so thrilled, Liz, that you are coming on today and sharing your story as a caregiver. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to share my story. If you did any research on me, you know that I was the caregiver for my sister as well, although there was a huge age gap and I raised her. But I'm very passionate about what caregivers go through because I've been there. Can you take us back to the beginning, maybe even before cancer? Tell us a little bit about your sister. Absolutely. Um, Similar to you, we had nine years apart, but I was the younger one. And so we had... um, Probably not so much of a connection when I was younger until I was an adult. And it was almost like when I went to college, you know, snap, she called and checked on me all the time. And just, you know, she was very motherly in that way at that time of my life. And it just developed our relationship so deeply. And I I don't even know, I don't know when it happened, but probably after I graduated and she started having kids, but we ended up talking multiple times a day, every single day as really, yeah. Yeah. We oh were just, gosh. She What's never it? lived around here. She lived, um, I'm in Philadelphia area and she's, uh, was up in Massachusetts. So we weren't super geographically close, but definitely, uh, well connected for sure. And what was her name? Kathleen. Well, take us back to the beginning of Kathleen's cancer journey and, and how you became the caregiver. It began, it was Christmas time of 2013, and she would always come down with her family and her kids and her husband, and we would spend the holidays together, mostly New Year's. So she would come, and that year she's like, you know, I have a a lump in my neck and going to the doctor, but, you know, I don't know what it is, but I have to go home early because I got an appointment, and I was kind of annoyed at her because she had to leave early, and I didn't want her to leave. I, you know, I said, oh, it's probably just a, an infection. You just need antibiotics. But she went and her family stayed. So I was excited that I could hang out with my niece and my nephew and my brother-in-law. And we enjoyed our time together. And then about probably, oh, I don't know, a week later, sometime that first week in January of 2014, she called me. And I was in this room that I'm in now, my home office. And she started talking to me. And she said, you know, I had a mammogram. But... Nothing showed up, but the nurse still thinks I might have breast cancer. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, you know, everybody has breast cancer anymore. It's it's like, it seems like I hear about it all the time and everybody's always fine. And that was just a very little tiny snapshot of cancer that I had at that point in my life. We did not have it in our family. It was not something that was really in our life all that much. We were very blessed in that way. And that was when I... I remember when she said I have breast cancer, you know, my whole body went, you know, cold, of course, but I had to be her support system from that, you know, that moment and before that moment on. So when did she actually get diagnosed? Because she said she tells you that the mammogram didn't show cancer, but 
they thought something might be there. So what were sort of the next steps to get her to that diagnosis? So the next time we talked, I'm sure was, I don't even know exactly the time frame, but she basically called to tell me that she had this very rare type of cancer called inflammatory breast cancer that doesn't show up on a mammogram and it shows up in the skin. So it's not a tumor that they can see, but it's in the tissue mm. and the cells. She was not the classic demographic for this. She was younger, different race. Typically it has, you know, more predominant inflammatory breast cancer statistic. And she really didn't know where it came from or why. So as I processed what she was diagnosed with, I, of course, I, I'm an ultimate optimist. So I just kept thinking she's going to be fine. We're going to go through this and we'll be together and it will we'll make it work. So Liz, I'm going to ask you one of my least favorite questions in the world. What was your sister's prognosis given that it was a very aggressive type of breast cancer and what were the steps for her treatment? Well, the interesting part about the story is, well, one of them is that my husband worked at our local cancer center. He's a businessman in the world of cancer, and he worked very closely with doctors. And at that hospital that he worked at was the number one doctor in the world for her specific strain. And oddly enough, as the universe would provide, his protege was in Boston. And so she went to his protege to be treated. So we knew immediately she was in good hands. I, I just had chills. Yeah. I have to tell you, wow. That part, as I'll share a little bit later, really helped me heal after she passed. She ended up going to Boston and having the number two person in the world with her, her treatment. I don't know that they ever really gave her a, you have this much time. It was, this is very aggressive. And one of the things that I didn't like, which maybe thinking about it now, they kind of saw the writing on the wall and wouldn't give her statistics, but they never let her get beyond where she was in that moment. So they said, first thing we're going to do, we're going to do chemotherapy. And then while she was in chemotherapy, she would say, okay, well, what's next? You know, I'd be in these, I'd go up and go to these appointments with her periodically. And they would say, oh no, we're not there yet. Let's talk about that when we get there. And it always bothered me because I felt like she was desperately trying to hold on to what was in the future. And they maybe knew that that wasn't really maybe not even going to get there. So, and she was a professional organizer was her job. So she wanted to know from that perspective, she continued to get, she started with her treatments and, you know, to go back a little bit, she started with her chemo. I would go up, we would have different family members kind of rotating in to help her because her kids at that point were a freshman in high school and an eighth grader and uh, her son and daughter. And her son was at a uh, sleepaway boarding school, this really great school that they had gotten him into for high school. And so her daughter was home with her and her husband during this time of, of her life. And we would go up and we'd help take care of all the, you know, driving to this, you know, activity or helping with food. And I particularly remember at that, that year, St. Patrick's Day, I was up there. And I, I have three kids and I, my, my third child was two at the time. So it wasn't an easy task to just take off and go up to, uh, to care give. So I did a lot of my caregiving, I would say was from an emotional perspective at a, at a distance. I do remember the, the tasks and my niece will probably laugh at this if, if she hears this, but my sister had a morning routine for my niece where she would 
knock on the door and then she would wake her up and then she would my niece doesn't like to wake up you know very early or at least at least at that point in her life and she said okay when you wake up megan you need to bring her a glass of water and put it next to her bed and gently touch her and wake her up and she just walked me through this whole routine which at the time i was like oh my gosh this is what we have to do with our teenagers i thought it was hilarious that she gave her this and what a beautiful gift you know for your mom to do that for you and and just love you in such a a way where she really catered to her her preference which i think was really great that megan had that from her at that time so liz it's interesting to me that your sister underwent chemotherapy first did she have surgery and if so where was surgery in that plan yeah, she was asking about that during her chemo because she wanted to know what was going to happen and if she needed to, you know, line up things in her life so that she could have help. She did have surgery. Basically, the way that it worked for her specific case, because I know everybody's got a different journey. She had chemo, then she had a six-week break, and then she had surgery, and then she had radiation following that. So after the surgery, there was another break to, you know, recover and whatnot. What type of surgery did she have? She had a single mastectomy. And then from there, she had, uh, you know, the daily radiation. I think it was for 30, 30 days straight. I hear about this and I still shake my head because that's what I usually hear. It's every day, five days a week yeah, for anywhere from four to eight weeks. And it's so interesting because some people think chemo is harder than radiation. Some people are the other way. So I'm curious, how did your sister handle the chemo and the surgery and the radiation? Was one period more difficult than the other? From my perspective, because again, I wasn't there the whole time. She was just a ray of sunshine. She really was. <laughs> she did not complain about any of the treatments because I know she really wanted it to work. And she just saw it as her medicine. And she had a dear friend who lived across the street from her who was an energy therapist. And she would come over after every single treatment and give her energy therapy. And she had never really done it with her prior to that. And it brought them really close together. And I became really close with her friend. And she would do this energy therapy. And it really significantly minimized her symptoms and, you know, side effects of the chemo. And not to say that it was a, a cakewalk, because I'm, I'm sure it wasn't. She just did it with a smile. You know, she was always the person that was just going to, she's the person that, you know, you know, this person, somebody dies, she's got the lasagna, you know, somebody needs an extra set of hands, she's there, like ready, and she'll have a team behind her if she needs to recruit one. So she was really, and she's kind of showed up for herself in that way, too. She really was keeping that positive, optimistic attitude throughout the whole thing. And that's where I came in as the caregiver. I don't know to what extent she did or didn't talk to her husband. And I never actually really talked to him about this in detail, but she would, it was because we talked on the phone all the time. I think it was easier for her not to have to look at someone to talk about it. And she would unload lots wow. of, lots of her actual fears and thoughts about the whole thing. Okay. You read my mind because I was thinking there always seems to be a conversation behind the patient's back in some way, shape, or form. And so I was thinking, did you and your brother-in-law ever have a conversation about what was going to happen, what your fears were? Did you have that conversation? No, we did not have that one-on-one. -on -one. I think 
my sister and I really had more of that. She never talked like she was going to die. She absolutely refused to believe that was what was going to happen. And through my work with cancer patients now, I know that sometimes denial, it can actually get you to last longer. And she had a very strong reason for living with her two kids and her family. And she was very dedicated and loved them so much. And, you know, she was really prepared to be here for the long haul. Before radiation started, I believe, it might have been just when it was just starting after surgery, I was at the beach in New Jersey with my family. And I got a phone call. I'm literally on the beach. And I answer because I will always answer for her phone calls. And she's just hysterical. She's crying. And she's just, it, I think everything just hit her. And she's like, my doctor says I, I have five years. You know, I'll be lucky if I have five years. I don't want five years. I want to be the grandmother. I want to be here. And it was just, you know, that part was hard. That was, I would say, my lowest point. My, my hardest moment was sitting there receiving that for her. I basically, we talked for a while my mom and dad were up there. Oddly enough, my parents were visiting. My dad ended up in the hospital with some, I don't think, very significant thing at the time, but kind of removed him from the situation. So she had a lot of alone time with my mom, which was a real blessing. I went up there to visit because she was devastated. And I looked at my husband and I'm at, on the beach with my mother-in-law and, and we're all together. And I thought, you know what? This is the perfect opportunity for me to go. Everybody's taken care of. My mother-in-law can help my, my husband. My kids are still really little. So I flew up there and I just spent time with her and really uh, just was present. I, I made space for her to share her fears and and she she did. I would say that was the turning point where she still had radiation ahead of her. So she knew that there were still options that were being addressed. So in her mind, again, she was not looking for this to be when I went up to visit her at that moment, it was not that she was thinking it wasn't, wasn't going to work out. She did start after that with, you know, if I'm not here, when Megan has a baby, you need to be here for her when she's in a delivery room, you know, promise me you'll do that kind of. So it was like more of those kinds of conversations because she, in her mind, was giving herself that five-year mark. Tell us what happened after radiation. So she went through the 30 days, and while she was there, uh, my husband and I planned to go visit because it was ending Labor Day weekend, and we decided we were going to take the kids. She loved my kids so much and just cherished the littleness of them. They always bring her joy, no matter how you know crazy little kids can be. She just embraced it, and she always did that with kids, all kids. She just loved little guys and was very... Uh, just very attached to them. So we decided we're going to go up. We're going to have a big party Labor Day weekend. We're going to celebrate her treatment being over. And I purchased um, at the time, one of the popular bracelets was a Pandora bracelet with all the charms. So I took my kids and we went to the Pandora store and we bought her a bracelet and I had everybody pick out a charm for her from them. And then Aww. my mom and my sister did the same. My other sister did the same. And we put them all in the bracelet and we were going to give it to her that weekend. And so I was really excited because she was excited. She was into that kind of thing. And we were planning to go up for the long weekend. And I think the day before we left, she got, she went for her treatment. It was the very end. She was on her last day or two of the radiation and her back was bothering her. So while she was, and it wasn't, it was, it was significant pain, but it wasn't like emergency. She just mentioned it in her 
appointment and they said, let's get it checked out. We'll get you an MRI. And so they went over to the hospital and her cancer had spread everywhere. So she wasn't getting treatments in that, you know, in that time she's getting the radiation and very targeted. So it just grew, it had spread. And so we got that call and I said, you know what, we're going to go this weekend and we're going to support her. We're going to be there as, you know, it was, you know, the universe provides in such mysterious ways and we were already all planning to be there and she still wanted us all to be there. And so I said, we're going to go, we're going to give her the bracelet. We're going to tell her it's to, you know, so she knows we're with her, but we're not there. And, and we spent the weekend and she <laughs> had a blast with the kids. She did. And I think it was a good distraction. I caught something that you just mentioned. You have another sister. Mm-hmm. Yep. Where is she in the birth order and what was her relationship to this experience? She's in the middle and she lives near me here. Our whole family is here except, you know, the Massachusetts family. And she was pregnant during a majority of the treatment. So she wasn't able to travel. And then she had her baby in the summer in July. I actually think she did go up one or two times to try to help as she could, trying to step up and, and really spend time with her so that we could have, you know, that quality time, regardless of how it worked out. We just wanted to support her. She just had, you know, she was from, she was here and she was kind of preoccupied with that. And I think everybody was sort of grieving in advance a little bit about, you know, once we knew what was essentially going to happen. So what's interesting. And one thing that I, I think is good information to share. So going back to the doctors that we had access to in her unique situation. So my sister had been seeing the uh, doctor in Massachusetts and when things weren't going well, she said, I would like to come down and see my husband's colleague. And we thought second opinion would be great. She had thought about it initially, but it didn't seem necessary because she had access to her, you know, someone, one of his colleagues. So she came down and she got a second opinion and he had said that he wished he had seen her before she had surgery. And so that was disappointing for her, for, you know, for everybody, because you just always hold on to what could possibly be the next thing to help. And what I think really helped me later, because I obviously had somewhat of a more personal connection with this guy, because he was my husband's, you know, colleague, I went in for my own mammogram that year I turned 40 and I had my first mammogram and he bumped into me in the hallway and he pulled me into his office and he just held my shoulders and he just, you know, showed, said, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about your sister. And he said, I just want you to know her cancer was remarkable and there's absolutely nothing I could have done for her at all. It really helped me because you just never know what if, what if, what if. And to hear the word remarkable usually is a good thing. Right. I was but, thinking that. It's, yeah. it's a positive word, but mm -hmm. not in this context. It's kind of like awesome. You're full of awe. He was, it was a remarkable case and noteworthy is how he meant it. It really helped give me peace in that way. So I was very grateful for having that relationship, you know, where he could, he could recognize me, pull me into his office and, and say that to me at a time where it was really, you know, it was really tough. I'm curious if you can sort of compare contrast because so many women today live with metastatic breast cancer years 
And many times people around them don't even know they have it because they're managing everything so well. So can you explain to us why that that vision or that prognosis wasn't available to your sister? And also given that it became metastatic, did she ever consider a clinical trial? I know that her strain is extremely rare and I think it's less than... I don't know if it's 1% or 5% of breast cancers, and she didn't even fit the mold of who typically got it. While I know that specific type of breast cancer at that time was very difficult to have a positive outcome, I work with lots of metastatic breast cancer patients, and they are thriving away. It really is such an individual illness. One of my best friends, aunt, has inflammatory breast cancer, and she's had it for seven years. Then on the other end, another really, really, really good friend of mine's mother had it and she passed away two weeks after she found out. <gasps> so you just you just don't know. What I would say is no one should ever take the statistics and believe them for themselves. Every single story is so incredibly different and it's really important not to, we always say in our work, believe the diagnosis and not the prognosis. My father-in-law had cancer many, many years ago, and he was told he had three months to live. He lived for 12 years. So to answer your question, she did not have clinical trials uh, available to her at that time. And I can tell you every single day in my work, I am inspired and awed by the people that I meet and the stories that I hear and miracles, like real miracles actually happen. People have spiritual awakenings and they get healed miraculously. Those things are real. Most of my clients, they're just so inspired to keep going and doing all the lifestyle changes that they need. And that would be the one thing that I would say my sister did not have, and I did not have at the time, any knowledge of the other side of cancer and all of the things that you can do on your own, all the things you've always been told to do. You know, your doctor said diet and exercise, diet and exercise, things like diet and exercise, stress reduction, all of those things play such an immense role on the ability for your medications to work and your side effects and your quality of life. So there's so much that can be done. And I was just speaking to someone earlier this week about how I don't know why, but I don't hold anger about my sister not having access to that information. I think that I have always interpreted her story as one of my lessons that brought me to knowing about that. For whatever reason, you know, you don't know why you feel the way you do in life with emotions and whatnot. And I, I just don't hold anger or frustration at the fact that she didn't know that. And, you know, quite frankly, it could be because that doctor said that to me. I just want to share this with you from sister to sister. I was never angry either. Like I went in and out of depression. I was in a very healthy, practical state of denial when my sister was sick. I had, I just had to be to function. Definitely bargained. I go back and forth with acceptance, but I became angry. It happened. It's been 20 years this month that Adrian died, but it was 17 years after she died and a television show triggered me, a TV show. Yeah. And it came out of nowhere. I could not believe how much anger was there. And once it came out, it was gone. I was stunned that it hit me so many years later. And I feel like yeah. that's something people don't talk about. Yeah. You know, it might happen. Right. And and it can be the most unexpected thing. And the best part about it is I was sitting alone in my living room 
because if that had happened in public, <laughs> I don't know, people would be like, oh. yeah, yeah. You know, I I was livid, just livid. Yeah, um, I think that's grief for you, right? Yeah. Just no matter how much time passes when you lose someone that you're really close to, you could have gone years without even finding a tear in the moment. Yeah. And then a song or a, a smell or a leaf falling from a tree, whatever it is, <laughs> just, you know, triggers that moment in you. I think that's important to keep in mind is that it's never a closed door. That's a great way to put it. Grief is yeah. not a closed door. You told us, Liz, what your worst moment was. Did you have a best moment during this time? I would say there's a moment that comes to mind very clearly. And knowing the full story now after she passed, looking back, it's easier to say that this was the best moment. It was obviously very bittersweet, but I was leaving. So my sister, my other sister and I brought the baby up to visit after he was born and she was on her, this was after a few months had passed from Labor Day. This was in December. And we went to visit her for a few days, just the three of us to spend time together with the baby and, and her, you know, her daughter and her husband. And we're well aware at that point, there was a lot going on. I, I did a lot of work with her emotionally, like for myself, releasing a lot and accepting a lot, just witnessing everything at that point. But she was still, you know, chipper and trying to, you know, offer us a drink of water or get it, you know, and she's attached to an oxygen machine with a, a wire coming out of her, you know, the thing that goes in your nose. She had my kids playing jump rope on that at one point. She just continued to be upbeat and she would be slow and she would be weak and she would just still have that overall overarching positivity. So we spend the time with her, you know, ups and downs over the course of that weekend and we say goodbye and I plan on going back up the next weekend. My mom was coming the next day and we were packing the car. And so she couldn't really move around that much. She was pretty weak. She's sitting in a chair in her bedroom next to her bed and we give her a hug goodbye and we say goodbye and we walk downstairs. Somehow she goes around her bed. She opens a window that's always really hard to open and she sticks her head out and she said, do you need anything? You need any snacks? You need anything? And I'm, I have such a clear vision. I'm standing at my car. My trunk's open. I've got my hands in all my bags. And I look up at her. And it was up, like kind of like a, a moment I'll never forget because she just looked healthy. She looked 100% herself. And she's just like, you need anything? And I was like, no, we're good. We're going to stop at you know, the, the store on the way and get some snacks. And we're okay. And I was like, bye, see ya. And just kind of left it light because I didn't know that she was going to die two days later. I think that's why that was my best moment because it was truly just a gift of normalcy and her shining her true self through that window at me. I love that memory so much. Do you think there's any part of her that knew? Yes, I think so. I think there was some acceptance towards the end because as her friend, I told you, is an energy healer and she said her friend went to the card store and bought a card for all the different occasions and then brought them for her the person she was caring for to fill out. And I was like, I am doing that. So I went to Walgreens and I bought, you know, all these different cards, probably had 15 to 20 different greeting cards. And they were, you know, happy graduation, happy birthday, happy anniversary for my brother-in-law, anything that I could buy in December, even Christmas cards um, <laughs> that 
seemed like it would, you know, a shower, a baby shower and all these different kinds of cards. I don't even know where they all are at this point. So I had brought them to her and I bought this birthday card for my niece and I bought it because my sister and her husband, uh, when they first got married, they lived in Hawaii for four years. And so there was this birthday card, you know, the kind that opened and play the music. Yeah. And it was somewhere over the rainbow. And I, I got it because they always talked about, you know, Hawaii and it was a Hawaii, the Hawaiian version with like the ukulele. And, and so I was like, well, this isn't really a birthday song, but that's okay. I'll just still get it. It'll, it'll remind Megan of, of, uh, you know, her and Chris's time in Hawaii. So I get there and I have all the cards, but I didn't give it to her yet. I didn't even tell her I was doing that. Cause you kind of have to, you got to gauge the, the room a little bit before you present that to someone. And I said, Oh, you know what? I just want it. And somehow we got more comfortable talking about, you know, what might happen. And I was telling her a story about a good friend of mine's mom always comes back to her in the form of a cardinal. So I was telling her that. And, and she's like, oh, don't worry. Wendy told me I'm going to be a rainbow. So I go and I get the cards and I tell her about the cards. And I'm like, I bought this for Megan's birthday card. And of course, it was somewhere over the rainbow. She was so connected to the the moment. So much synchronicity. And then Wendy, her this was the energy therapy friend, came over and took me shopping to buy little crystal angels that would bring the sun through the window and cast rainbows everywhere. So we bought them for all the kids, her kids, my kids, my sister's kids, and we all have them all over the house. And I will tell you, even on the darkest winter day, there are times where rainbows show up and you just know that it's something from the other side communicating that it's going to be okay. Oh, that is so sweet. And yeah, she knew. I mean, she knew. Yeah, there was some level of acceptance for sure. What is one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning? At the beginning, I think I, I mean, as much as I don't have regrets about not knowing what I know now, I wish that I did. I think it would have helped with her quality of life and it really would have helped her feel like she had a, a some sort of control. One of the things that I witnessed about her experience was because she kept asking her doctor, what's next, what's next? And they wouldn't tell her, it really frustrated her. Because she was a planner and she did want to know and she did want to see the path. So that was something where I feel now I really advocate for people to not worry so much what the doctor says their path is, but what do they see their path to be? What do they want it to look like? And how can they make that come to fruition through their own actions and lifestyle change and and different, you know, that's kind of a big umbrella, but, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to make that work for you. So I do wish I had that in my toolkit for her or that she knew about it at the time. And it just wasn't something we knew about. And I, I'm at peace with that because if it were me, I wouldn't have known either. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U S Liz, what would it be and why? Well, I would focus on the cancer aspect of healthcare. And I think that I would like to impress on everybody the importance of having that own lifestyle change in conjunction with your conventional medicine. You know, I'm not, I'm not for or against whatever everybody needs to do for their, their conventional treatment or no, no treatment of conventional, you know, it's just really important that you take a really strong role in your healing and you take responsibility and you don't give someone else the driver's seat in your car. Oh my God. That is so well said. That last part, especially, oh gosh, I, I really, I really love that. And I know someone I interviewed recently said he's a survivor 
And he made it very clear to his doctors that they were not in charge. He said, I'm hiring you. You can be the coach on my team, but you don't own the team. I'm the Mm -hmm. team. (laughs) And and it was, he was very proactive and and he did get some resistance and he went and found another doctor. Anytime he got resistance, he was like, nope, not going to, not going to do it. Liz, are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire questions? I am. Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Beatles. What is one word that best describes you? Charismatic. And before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Because then I'll know I'm going to the right place. Oh. And what about the last meal you want to eat? I want to have, I don't eat dairy now. And I would love to have a big ice cream sundae with hot fudge and all the fixins. What about the last person or people you want to see? Um, I would say probably my husband. He's he's just my my strength. So I would say I'd like to hope that he's, you know, the one that's there with me by my side when that happens. And of course, you always want your kids to be nearby, but sometimes it depends on where they are in their lives if you want them to see that. And that was something that my sister did not want her kids to see at their age. So I respect that. And, you know, I I think my husband's the right answer for that one. That's a very nuanced point of view, but I really appreciate it. What are the last words you will speak? This is a little, a fun little story. My, my 16 year old just the other day was telling me about her friend who got a tattoo. And she said, I think I want to get a tattoo of you saying, I love you too in your handwriting, I want, I love you too, to be a tattoo on my body. And I said, you do? Because, <laughs> you know, you don't always, you always know where you stand with your 16-year-old. <laughs> and, Absolutely. Yeah, she's like, one time when we were, I was going to bed, I said, I love you. And you paused and you said, I love you too. And you said, you know, you're an I love you and I'm an I love you too, because that's just the way that it always comes out in our dynamic. So she said that she would love to tattoo that on her. And oh. of course, I'm going to say yes to that. So you could get I love you in my handwriting. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. So I think that I love you too would be meaningful for her. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And I know people listening can't see, but I actually have my that's my sister's oh. signature tattoo. Oh, it is? And that's her favorite color. And when I decided to do this, let's see. This is my sister. I just found this this post-it oh. one day. And I just keep it next to my desk. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Good luck. Oh. Yeah. Aside from Cancer U, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And I definitely want you to talk about how people could get in touch and work with you. I really love what we've put together. My partner, Carla, and I have, along with some other coaches, really developed a beautiful program called uh, the Health Navigators. And we advocate lifestyle change for cancer patients, and we provide book clubs and support groups and coaching programs. And I think that the feedback I get every single day from our our audience really means so much to them to have each other and us kind of facilitating these really uplifting, positive, how can we keep looking forward in our health perspective. We always call our community and it's inspired cancer patients. They're people who are inspired to look ahead and support each other and, and just, you know, resources and sharing and the community aspect is probably the strongest piece 
but also the reflection and the learning. We do a lot of programs with what we call self-health books. So health instead of help. And we have a stories that heal library that we created. And we have lots of really great books that aren't cancer books per se. They're just books that we could all use to continue to grow and progress. And we have cancer caregivers in there. We have patients in there. We have people with autoimmune disorders that are kind of really heavy and as, as significant as a late stage cancer diagnosis. And, and they all mesh together really beautifully because we're all just kind of coming from a place of wanting to heal. And where else can people reach out to you? Uh, the website, Facebook, yeah, sure. tell us the best ways. Our website is healthnavs, N-A-V-S for navigator, healthnavs.com. And if you look on there, you'll see all of our offerings. You'll see Carla and myself. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook, just Health Navigators. You can find us at either of those places. Anytime anybody participates in our programming, they are invited to participate in our private Facebook group to connect with each other and other people that have been in the programming. So we do have some stuff there. I think we're on LinkedIn and soon to be on TikTok. All right. Well, we will put links to all that in the show notes and the workshop notes. And yes, when you get TikTok, let me know. <laughs> I will. Thank you so much for coming on today and not only sharing Megan's story, but really sharing your story, Liz. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me and allowing me to kind of go down that memory lane. It's been a while since I've really thought about it. And she passed away on December 9th. So this is a very important time of year for me. This kind of Thanksgiving to Christmas period is is really uh, special to me. So I thank you for allowing me that that space right here. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.